All right, we'll be in 1 Kings 19 this morning. You can turn there. 1 Kings 19, we'll be looking at Elijah. Well, it will probably come as, as no surprise to those of you who know me to hear that in junior high and high school, I competed in the science fair. That's kind of my thing. Uh, I figured out early in life that baseball and basketball, football, soccer, none of those were going to work out for me was not going to have a win in sports, but I needed something to do well at. I needed something to win so that I could earn the respect of my peers and have some popularity. So I made it my goal in junior high and high school to win the National Science Fair, this big competition for the best science fair project in the nation. I thought that would finally earn me the respect of the guys and that girls would want to date me. So I had a a lot more like scientific intelligence as a kid than, than relational intelligence because I really thought that would work. So I set it as my goal and every year I would spend months making and building my science fair project and I'd win in my school and in my town and then I'd go to the Houston science fair and I would do well but I would never win. I would never get beyond there because there'd always be some kid who discovered some new theorem in mathematics and you can't compete with that. So uh, I, I kept trying though. Year after year I kept improving my work until my junior year I invented this safety device for airplanes. I actually tested it here at A&M, entered it in the science fair. I won my town. I won Houston. I won state. I went to the national science fair. I got third in the nation. It was like my best day, this huge win for me. <laughs> it's funny, that was not at all what I was looking for, but <laughs> it kind of actually works against my illustration because I won third and I went back to my high school and I remember the day that my principal announced it over the loudspeaker and I thought it would be this great moment and I look around and no one cares. No guys are clapping for me. No one's giving me high fives. No girls are making eyes at me. No one cared. All of that hard work, that great accomplishment, it changed nothing in my high school and that left me feeling really discouraged. Why did I work so hard when no one cares? We've all had that, that moment in our lives when we've worked incredibly hard to accomplish something really good and then the results didn't pan out the way that we hoped. And that leaves us discouraged. It leaves us depressed. Maybe it was a class that you studied incredibly hard for and you still failed it. Or, or maybe it was a job that you lost despite doing your best. Maybe it was a business that went under despite all your sacrifice. Maybe it was a relationship that didn't work out even though you had great hopes for it. Maybe it was giving birth to a child. Did you know that 80% of new moms suffer from postpartum blues when they give birth to a child? That's a prolonged feeling of sadness that accompanies childbirth, 80%. And for 10 to 20% of those women, it becomes actual clinical depression. So you carry this baby for nine months. You, You literally let it suck the life out of you and then you give birth, which is a huge victory. And what do you get? Depression. It's not the hallmark moment you were expecting. That feeling of depression and discouragement, it goes hand in hand for most people when it comes to childbirth and it follows us as as parents. Depression goes with parenting because you sacrifice your child for your child. You you pour into your child, you you don't sacrifice your child. (laughs) Let's get that straight. You sacrifice for your child, you sacrifice yourself for your child, you invest in your child, you teach, you train, you give, you love. And yet your child is still immature, still selfish day after day. It leaves you discouraged and depressed. You wonder, why am I working so hard when nothing changes? You cannot go through life in a broken world like this one and not experience intense times of despair and even depression. So the question for us this morning is, what do you do when life deeply disappoints you? 
When life leaves you feeling overwhelmed by despair and depression, what do you do to find deliverance from that? There's actually a lot of passages that you could go to in the Bible that speak to that question. We're going to look at one of the best this morning, 1 Kings 19. We're going to look at the story of Elijah and, and his battle with despair and how God delivered him from his fear and depression. But first, let me introduce you to Elijah so you know a little bit about this man who we're studying this morning. Elijah was a prophet in the 9th century, 9th century BC, who ministered to the nation of Israel. Now, this is the period of the divided kingdom. You got Judah to the south, Israel to the north. Now, Israel fell into idolatry quickly, and it was actually their king and queen who led them into idolatry. A king named Ahab and his wife Jezebel, they led the nation to worship these idols called the Baals, a false god. And, and Ahab and Jezebel, they were so wicked, they were so evil that God decided to raise up a new kind of prophet, a, a kingly prophet, a prophet who could work miracles, a prophet who could confront kings, a prophet who could call forth angel armies. And, and that prophet is Elijah. He had incredible authority. He bursts on the scene in chapter 17. He shows up to Ahab and he says that the nation of Israel is going to be judged because of its idolatry. God is bringing a drought upon the land and it will last until I say otherwise. That's a pretty bold statement. Elijah means business. That, that drought it lasted for three years until finally the nation was ready for a, a climactic showdown between the Baals and Yahweh, the God of Israel. That's 1 Kings 18. Most of you know that story. Elijah, he calls all of the nation of Israel to come to Mount Carmel. And, and they show up there for this battle between Baal and Yahweh. And so they build two altars, one for Yahweh, one for Baal. And whichever God can light his altar first, that is the one true God. So Elijah, he lets the prophets of Baal go first. They dance around the altar of Baal and they sing and they chant and they yell and they cut themselves. Anything that they can do to get Baal's attention, that goes on for hours and nothing happens. So finally, after letting them exhaust themselves, Elijah steps up to the altar of Yahweh, the altar of the Lord. And he does something very unexpected, something very surprising. He, he pours buckets of water on the altar, bucket after bucket, until it's just totally soaked so that it would be really hard to catch on fire. And once it's just drenched in water, he bows his head and he prays and boom, fire falls from heaven. It vaporizes the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the water, all of it. The whole nation sees God act, falls on their knees and proclaims Yahweh, the Lord, he is God. And so it's this incredible victory for Elijah. He's vindicated in front of the whole nation. I think the closest equivalent would be imagine that Elijah rents Kyle Field and packs it with all of us. We fill every seat of the newly rebuilt Kyle Field. It's just packed. And in front of all of us, he wins this amazing victory once and for all over his enemies. Shows us all that God is the one true God. Incredible victory for Elijah. So he figures, this is it. This is my moment. We've won. We've, got, we've had victory. The nation is going to change. The nation is going to come back to God. And so he hikes up his robe and runs all the way to the capital city, to Jezreel, where the palace is. He runs all the way there because he's so excited because he just knows that either Ahab is going to repent and come back to God or the nation is going to kick him out. Sadly, that's not what happens. 1 Kings 19. Look at 1 Kings 19 with me. Verse 1. Now Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. 
Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and even more if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. So this great victory in 1 Kings 18, it's followed by a huge letdown in 1 Kings 19 because there's no repentance. Uh, There's no revolution. There's not even a few protesters out in front of the palace. There's no one. There's no change at all. Still Ahab, Jezebel, and the Baals who are in charge of Israel. In fact, the only thing that changes is that now Elijah is a wanted man. Jezebel's promised you're going to die within the next 24 hours. And she had the power to make good on that threat. And so Elijah, he takes off. He, he runs. Look at the next verse, verse 3. And he, that is Elijah, was afraid. And he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree and he requested for himself that he might die and said, it is enough now, O Lord, take my life for I am not better than my father's. Let me show you his journey. Elijah begins in Mount Carmel, far to the north and excited with his great victory, he runs all the way to Jezreel, the capital city. Then the the threat is put out on his life and so he books it all the way south. He runs all the way through Israel, then all the way through Judah to the town on the far tips, on the far southern tip of Judah, Beersheba. And then he goes another day's journey into the wilderness, but he doesn't stop there. Look at verse eight. So he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. He doesn't stop at Beersheba. He keeps running into the wilderness 40 days and 40 nights all the way to the very southern tip of the Sinai Peninsula, all the way to Mount Horeb. So Elijah, he runs. Why does he run away from Jezreel all the way as far south as you could possibly go? Well, obviously the first reason he runs is because he's afraid. He fears for his life, so he runs. But it's not just fear. When you really look closely at what's going on, it's not just fear that motivates Elijah to run away. Really, the bigger reason why he books it while he takes off into the desert is because Elijah is just utterly depressed. He is incredibly discouraged. See that in verse three. Look at verse three again. It says at the end, he left his servant there in Beersheba. Why does Elijah have a servant? Not because he's a rich man, but because he's a prophet. His servant helped him to fulfill his prophetic ministry, carry messages, do the things that prophets had to do. He's leaving behind his servant. Why? Because he's quitting. He's giving up on his ministry. He's done being God's prophet, so he lets his prophetic servant go. He says, I'm I'm done with this. I'm I'm not going to minister anymore. Why? Why does he give up? Verse 4, because he says, I am no better than my father's. I'm no better than the prophets who came before me. They couldn't turn Israel away from their idolatry. Neither could I. It's it's pointless. I'm worthless. It's useless to keep trying. I give up. I just want to die. Elijah is completely depressed. He's given up on life. He just wants to die. And so full of fear and depression, he runs off into the wilderness. And that forces us to ask ourselves, was Elijah sinning? When he gave in to fear and despair and ran off into the desert, was he sinning? Many commentators think he was. That he is rebelling against God's call on his life. But I don't think it's that simple. I don't think he's sinning because, first of all, there's no clear rebellion here. God hadn't told him to stay in Israel. God hadn't said not to run south. And when God shows up, there's no rebuke. There's no condemnation. And here's the key. Here's what I think those commentators are missing. Did you notice, where did Elijah run? To Mount Horeb, which is a different name for a mountain you know as Sinai. 
This is Mount Sinai, the mountain of God, where God showed up to Moses in the burning bush. And then a few years later, where God shows up to the nation of Israel in a mighty earthquake and gives them the law. This is God's mountain. It's the most sacred, most holy place on earth for an Israelite. So Elijah isn't pulling a Jonah here. He's not running away from God. He's running towards God to the one place on earth where God's presence could most clearly be felt. I think that's very significant. There will come a day in your life where you feel overwhelmed by fear or by depression. You will run somewhere to find relief. You can either run to the world, to the pleasures and the distractions that it offers you, or like Elijah, you can run towards God to find help and relief in the arms of God. That's what Elijah does. He runs to God and God shows up. God arrives in the moment of Elijah's need and God gives to Elijah three gifts. Three gifts that are meant to deliver him from despair that's just overwhelmed him. Now, I have to be real clear for a moment. These gifts, these three things that God gives Elijah in, these, in this passage, they, they are not a magic cure for depression. If you're feeling depressed, if you're feeling overwhelmed by anxiety, these aren't a magic pill you take and all of a sudden you're better. All of us are unique. Our particular path through depression or anxiety will be unique to each of us. But these three gifts that God gives to Elijah, what I can promise you is that when you feel overwhelmed by fear or depression, these will help you. You may need other things in addition to these three gifts from God, but you will for sure need these three things from God to find a pathway through anxiety, fear, depression, and discouragement. So let's look at these three gifts that God gives to Elijah in this passage. The first gift, when God first shows up, first thing he gives to his despairing prophet is rest. Rest. Look with me. Let's look starting in verse 5. He, that is Elijah, lay down and slept under a juniper tree, and behold, there was an angel touching him, and he said to him, Arise, eat. Then he looked, and behold, there was at his head a bread cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. The angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise, eat, because the journey is too great for you. So God arrives in the form of the angel of the Lord. That's commonly how God appears in visible form in the Old Testament. The angel of the Lord comes and notice the first thing that God gives to Elijah. It's not a rebuke. He doesn't condemn Elijah. He does not teach Elijah. He does not instruct Elijah. He does not even sit down next to Elijah and say, hey, bro, you want to talk about it? None of that. What's the first thing God does in Elijah's life? He cooks him a meal. God shows up and cooks him a meal and puts him back to bed. Why? Because God had been watching this man for three years as as he did all of this incredible ministry for the nation of Israel and then this huge climactic battle on Mount Carmel and then God watched as Elijah ran all the way to Jezreel and then God watched as he ran all the way far to the south. God knew Elijah was tanked. He was absolutely exhausted. God saw that the first and foremost thing that Elijah needed was was rest. He needed a good meal and a good night's sleep. You know, there's, there's a lot of Christians who assume that every problem in life can be solved by reading the Bible and praying more. So if you feel tempted by sin, you need to read the Bible and pray more. 
you're having a hard time getting along with your spouse, you need to read the Bible and pray more. If you're feeling depressed, you need to read the Bible and pray more. Well, it is always good to read the Bible and pray more, but sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is eat a good meal and get to bed early. Sometimes that is what you need most. Absolutely. The reason is because God designed your physical body. It's important to him. The needs of your body aren't insignificant. God created that physical body for you and then he united it to your spirit. So often spiritual problems will have physical causes. You cannot neglect your body and not expect to pay a spiritual price. You've got to take care of your physical body. God knew that's what Elijah needed first. Elijah would be ready to hear from God's word later once he had rested and had a good meal. First, he needed rest. So what does that mean for us? How do we apply that to our lives? Well, it could be that if you are feeling discouraged, depressed, if you're feeling overwhelmed by anxiety, if you feel emotionally or relationally or spiritually empty, if you feel like you can't overcome anger or sadness in your life, if life seems to be falling apart for you, then it may be that the first part of this rest that you need is you need to go talk to a doctor. You need to get some tests done. You need to get some blood work done. You need to find out, is there a medical reason for for what's going on? Is my physical body broken? Am I having a problem here that needs to be taken care of first? So maybe the first you need to go get a physical. That's that's often actually, somebody comes to my office and they're really depressed. Often the first thing I'll do is ask them, when was the last time you saw a doctor? To see how your body is doing. So you may need to get a physical. You may need to check your diet and get exercise. It it has been proven beyond a shadow of a doubt that, that a good diet and exercise, they affect your mood, your energy level, your ability to focus. You cannot neglect your physical health and not expect to pay a spiritual price for that. You may need to take care of your diet and exercise. You may need to just get more sleep. I cannot tell you how many college students I've talked to who've been struggling with something in their life. Maybe they're feeling overwhelmed by anxiety or despair or their relationships are breaking down or they just feel like they can't conquer temptation. And in the course of the conversation, I find out, well, they're carrying a full load of classes and they're working a full-time job on the side and they're going to a Bible study every night of the week and they're lucky to get six hours of sleep. And I tell them, stop doing that. No, you cannot neglect sleep. It is not optional for you. Your schedule is writing checks that your body can't cash. You are never going to overcome depression or anxiety as long as you don't get enough sleep. Gotta get sleep. Finally, you may need to take a vacation. I was talking with a friend a few weeks ago. We were commenting about how odd it is. For most of human history, we lived agrarian lives. We worked the land, we're farmers. Okay, so human beings worked as farmers and you look at the schedule of a farmer. Well, sometimes farmers work incredibly hard. During planting and harvesting, they're working all the time, incredible labor. But in between, there are moments of rest. There are times to go do other things. They have vacation, they have rest built into their annual schedule. Somehow we lost that in the modern industrial world. God created you to need breaks, to need vacation. It may be that you just need to get out of town for a little while and get away from work, get some rest, get some vacation. So it could be that if you're feeling overwhelmed by despair, by depression, by anxiety, that the first thing you need, like Elijah, is rest. You just need to give your body some rest. It's the first gift that God gives Elijah to help deliver him from his despair. The second gift that God gives Elijah is a reminder A reminder that God was at work even when Elijah 
couldn't see it. Look with me starting in verse 9. Then he, that is Elijah, came there to a cave and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've torn down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword, and I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. So he said, go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord, and behold, the Lord was passing by, and a great and strong wind was rending the mountains and breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind, and after the wind an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of a gentle blowing. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. And behold, a voice came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? Then he said, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenants, torn down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left and they seek my life to take it away. The Lord said to him, go, return to your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you have arrived, you shall anoint Hazael king over Aram. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. It shall come about, the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael, Jehu shall put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elisha shall put to death. Yet... I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Okay, so God shows up and he asks Elijah a question and Elijah gives an answer. We'll look at Elijah's answer in a moment. But then God gives Elijah an object lesson. He tells Elijah, go out to the side of the mountain and, and watch as I pass by. And, and first a hurricane hits the mountain. Just like what we saw when God showed up to Job last week. There's a hurricane that assaults the mountain, but God is not in the hurricane. And then there's an earthquake that hits the mountain. That's how God revealed himself on that same mountain of the nation of Israel just centuries before. But, but God is not in the earthquake. And then fire comes from heaven, just like it consumed the altar. Fire comes, but God is not in the fire. But then God shows up face to face in a gentle, quiet whisper, a gentle blowing of the wind. Now, what is God trying to teach Elijah in this object lesson? Well, to understand God's lesson, to understand what God wants Elijah to understand, you first have to to see where Elijah has gone wrong in his thinking. What mistakes of thinking is Elijah making as he thinks about his life? Look back again at verse 10. Let's see what Elijah thinks about life. Elijah says, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. There's two mistakes that Elijah makes in that verse, same mistakes that we often make when we think about our lives. The first is revealed what he says right at the beginning, I have been very zealous for the Lord. I've been very zealous for you. In other words, Elijah's saying, God, I've I've done everything you've asked me to do. I've done it all. I've worked hard. I've done this ministry that you called me to do. I've done all of this stuff and nothing has happened. I did X, Y, and Z to the best of my ability and you did not step up and do A, B, and C. What are you doing, God? In other words, Elijah's first mistake, he expected instant results. He expected that when he does his part, God would immediately do his part. 
That's the same mistake that we make often in life. We, we expect instant results. We expect that if we do good today, that it will change our lives for the better tomorrow. So if I invest in my marriage today, my marriage will feel better to me tomorrow. If I invest in my child today, teaching him and training him, he will obey better tomorrow. If I love that unkind coworker today, he will be nicer to me tomorrow. If I share the gospel with my sister today, she will accept Christ tomorrow. And then tomorrow comes and the results don't materialize and we get depressed. We get overwhelmed with despair because it didn't work out the way we expected because we expected instant results. Just like Elijah did. That was his first error. He expected instant results. His second error is at the end of the verse. He says, I alone am left. Elijah looks around, all around him, and he sees no one else stepping up to fight against idolatry in Israel. And so he assumes that the fate of the nation of Israel rests on his shoulders. Either he fixes this nation or no one does. It's all about him. In other words, Elijah's second mistake, he overestimates his importance in the plan of God. All comes down to me, God. I alone am left. I'm the only one. And now they're seeking my life. We make that same mistake all the time. We overestimate our importance in the plan of God for our lives, for the lives of our families. We, we assume at the end of the day, really, for my life to work out and for my kids and my family to work out, it all rests ultimately on my shoulders. I have to fix the problems that my family faces. I have to control things and manage things and take care of things or life is going to fall apart around me. But when you are carrying the weight of the world on your shoulders, you will eventually fall to anxiety and depression. You will. You're carrying too much responsibility. You are overestimating your importance to the plan of God for your life and for your family. We make the same mistakes that Elijah did, these same two errors in our thinking. And so God wants to correct Elijah. He wants to correct us. So let's ask ourselves, what is God saying to this prophet who, who expected instant results, who overestimated his importance in God's plan? What is God saying in, in this theophany when God shows up in the gentle whisper? Well, the, the first three things that hit that mountain, the hurricane, the earthquake, and the fire, those are big. Those are flashy. Those have instantaneous results. No one misses hurricanes, earthquakes, and fires. That is sometimes how God works in our world. Every once in a while, he shows up in a big flashy way that no one misses, but that's not usually how he works. Usually God works in this world through a gentle, quiet, invisible whisper that no one sees. That's easy to miss. He's working behind the scenes where no one can see him and yet notice the end of our passage. That gentle, quiet, invisible whisper of God had done what? It had raised up 7,000 faithful Israelites. So just put that together in your mind for a moment. Elijah, his incredible public dramatic ministry had netted a sum total of zero converts. And yet God's quiet, gentle, invisible whisper had raised up 7,000 faithful Israelites. And that's what God's point is. That's what he wants us to understand. That his quiet whisper, working all around us in ways that we don't even see, it can accomplish more than we could ever imagine. God, with his invisible quiet whisper, can accomplish more than all of our furious effort. 
How do you apply that to your life? How do you apply this passage to yourself when you're feeling depressed, when you're feeling overwhelmed by anxiety? First, let me tell you how not to apply it. Don't go out in the woods and wait for God to whisper to you. This is Elijah. He's a prophet. God spoke audibly to prophets, not to us. God has spoken to us in his word. So it's not to go out in the woods. What God wants us to do when we feel depressed, when we feel overwhelmed by anxiety and despair, the application of this passage is that we, like Elijah, we need to choose to believe that God is at work all around us, even if we can't see it. Something you got to take on faith because you cannot see it. God wants you to live by faith, just like we talked about last week with Job. You got to choose to believe that God is at work in your kids, even when you don't see them growing in obedience. You got to choose to believe that God is at work in your marriage, even when it doesn't seem to be getting better. You got to choose to believe that God is at work in your relatives, in your friends, in your peers, even if you don't yet see any fruit. You got to take it on faith that God's quiet, gentle, invisible whisper is at work all around you doing incredible things, even if you can't yet see it. You got to take it on faith. You got to remind yourself day after day, God doesn't need me. He is at work in quiet and invisible ways, changing the world in incredible ways. So that's the second thing that God gives Elijah. Deliver him from despair. He gives Elijah this reminder that God is at work in invisible ways, doing incredible things. That's the second gift. Third gift that God gives Elijah to help deliver him from despair. God gives him the gift of a renewed focus in life. God's final gift to Elijah is the gift of simplicity. See, Elijah had let his life get really complicated because he assumed the, the fate of the nation of Israel rested on his shoulders, so he had a lot of work to do. He made life really complicated, so God reminds him, no, fate of Israel, that rests on my shoulders. All I need you to do, Elijah, is one thing, only one thing in life. I want you to find and raise up the next leaders for your nation. Three guys that, that God calls Elijah to raise up. Hazael and Jehu and Elisha. And interestingly, it's really actually only Elisha, the third one, that really matters because Elijah will raise up Elisha and it will be Elisha who will appoint those other two guys. So really, all that Elijah needed to do for the rest of his life is find and train his successor. That was the one and only thing that God wanted him to focus on. God simplified Elijah's life so that he could let go of all of these other responsibilities that were weighing him down. It could be that if you are struggling with despair, with depression, or with anxiety, that what you need to do in your life right now is you need to simplify things. You need to renew your focus on on just those priorities in, in your life. You need to let go of all of those other things. So I think one of the reasons that we as a society are so prone to anxiety and depression is that we have chosen to live incredibly complicated lives. So many activities, so many pursuits, so many distractions, which are good, and yet you add all of them up and it leaves you no time for rest, no time for relationship with God. You are a, an easy target for depression and anxiety. And so God is calling us to simplify our lives, to, to renew our focus on just those most important things. Now, for all of us in this room, I can tell you what the number one item is on your list. Number one priority on your list of, of simple things that you need to focus on is your relationship with God. For all of us, that's priority number one because the creator, God, the king, he's a good king, like Tim had said, who, who actually wants to spend time with you. 
He wants to know you. He wants to be a father to you and have you be a son or a daughter to him. You enter into that relationship. You become a child of God simply through faith. You don't have to earn your way into the family of God. You don't work for it. You don't come to church for it. You just accept it as a gift. God offers eternal life and and membership in his family to everyone who will simply believe that it's a free gift that Jesus purchased by dying for our sins on the cross and rising from the dead. The moment that you trust in Jesus for eternal life, you become a child of God and that relationship with God as your father becomes your number one priority in life for the rest of your life. But relationships take time. You gotta take time daily to be in God's word so you can hear him speak to you. And you gotta spend time in prayer so you can speak to him. That's your number one priority, time in the word and in prayer, building your relationship with God, your father. That's your number one priority. But the rest of the priorities on your list, I can't give you those. Those are unique to every one of us. And they'll change as you go through different stages of life. Only you can set those priorities in your life. But I want us to to take a few minutes as we close this morning together to set our priorities. And I'll make this a little simpler. We're just going to talk about the period of life that we're in right now, this summer. Summer 2014, you're halfway through it. What are your priorities for the rest of this summer? And we'll make it easy. We'll just list out three. And I've already given the first one to you. So all you got to do is come up with priority number two and priority number three for the rest of the summer. What are your top three priorities going to be this summer? Is it a a child, one of your children that's really struggling that you need to focus extra attention on? Is it getting vacation, getting away, getting some rest for a while? Is it building a habit of getting exercise into your daily life? Is it working on some aspect of your marriage that's struggling? What are your priorities going to be for the rest of this summer? I want you just privately take a minute. I'm just going to give you a minute of silence to think through what's priority number two and priority number three for me as an individual for the rest of this summer. With a few priorities in mind, I want you to share those with somebody today. Before you go to bed tonight, I'd like you to to share with your spouse or or with a friend what your priorities are going to be, one, two, three, for the rest of the summer so that they can pray for you and hold you accountable. we still got enough of summer left for it to count. So let's use it well. Let's simplify our lives and focus on what matters most. Every one of us at some point in this life is going to struggle with anxiety and despair. You're going to be there at some point. When you feel overwhelmed by anxiety, by despair, by depression, I want you to remember these three gifts that God gave to Elijah to help deliver him. First, rest. You need rest for your physical body. Second, you need to remember You need to remember that God is at work all around you, even when you can't see it. You just got to take it on faith. And third, a renewal of your focus. You got to simplify on those priorities that really matter in life and be willing to let everything else go. God wants to move you from places of despair, places of anxiety to places of health. And and it's possible. That's the great news. We don't have time to go through it this morning, but Elijah, he moves forward in life. He accomplishes greater things for God in the future of his life. God moves him through that time of great depression and despair, just like he can move you through yours. Let's pray and ask God to help us to walk in truth and joy. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you care deeply about us. 
We thank you that you are our king. You are our father who cares about us. We thank you that when we fall prey to fear and anxiety, despair and depression, you do not judge us. You do not condemn us. Instead, just like you came to Elijah, you come to us to deliver us to heal us and to help us to grow. I pray, Father, that for anyone in this room this morning who who is feeling depressed, who is feeling full of anxiety or despair, I pray that you would come beside them and comfort them. I pray that you would help them to feel permission to get rest. I pray that they would get rest into their schedule, that they would bring health into their lives and get the time off that they need. I pray that you would remind them that you are at work all around them, even if they can't see it, that you're working in their lives, in the lives of their families, their co-workers. I pray, Lord, that they would believe that you are at work even when they can't see the fruit of it. And finally, Lord, I pray that you would bless them with the gift of simplicity. I pray that you would help them to see what truly matters in life, that you would, that you would bring life down and focus it down on what they truly need to carry and that they'd be willing to let go of all the rest. I pray, Father, that you would bring healing and comfort to them. I pray for all the rest of us, Lord, that we would walk with you in truth, that we would walk with you faithfully this week, that we would love you and grow in our passion to know you. Thank you for your son who makes it possible for us to call you Father. In his name we pray, amen. God bless you guys. Next week we'll look at Isaiah.